They're experts at at uh, these kinds of wicked, destructive, improvised explosive devices. Under no circumstances, if I were advising Netanyahu, would I entertain any kind of permanent um, ceasefire. Every day is an existential threat for the Israeli people. Hello, and welcome to On the Home Front. I'm Jeff Duden. In light of the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine, I reached out to my friend, retired U.S. Brigadier Army General Anthony Tata, who through his 28 years of service has acquired on the ground, first-hand understanding of the macro geopolitical landscape of this region, as well as the tactical challenges faced by all parties involved. I believe this conversation with Tony will add to your understanding of this very complicated and difficult conflict from Tony's perspective. Thank you for listening. Welcome everyone to the home front this morning. We have retired Brigadier General Tony Tata, U.S. Army, on with us today. Welcome, Tony. Great to be with you, Jeff. Thank you. Tony, the reason that I asked you to come on this morning was to talk about the situation in Israel and the Gaza Strip. Uh, from an educational perspective, myself and many others, as this has escalated, has gone to uh, the internet and spent a lot of time researching the region and uh, the, the actions and reactions that are happening. And I really wanted to get your perspective as somebody who's traveled the world uh, and has spent a lot of time in this area in diplomacy and try to get an understanding of um, or maybe raise our, raise our understanding of what's going on over there right now. I'd like to start from a macro perspective, if you would speak to the geopolitical situation, uh, what challenges does the geography that exists create, and um, maybe set the scene for um, a deeper conversation around some specific issues. Yeah, great. Uh, thanks, Jeff, for the opportunity. Um, the, uh, the state of Israel, uh, and there are a lot of debates about when it came into existence, how long Jewish people have been there. Uh, you know, we're getting ready to celebrate the birth of Christ, a Jew uh, from 2000 plus years ago. So um, uh, put all of that aside, because that's something that academics and, and Internet warriors will uh, come up with different uh, facts or make up different facts to, to argue um, whose land that is. It, it is somewhat of a territorial dispute, but let's just take the, the uh, situation as it is today. The state of Israel um, is uh, a, a piece of land uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they've got Lebanon in the north. They've got in the northeast Syria. Um, that press up along the, what's called the Golan Heights. Uh, you got Jordan in the east, and you have Egypt in the southwest. And inside Israel, you've got the Gaza Strip to the south that borders uh, between the southern reaches of Israel and and uh, Egypt, uh, the the uh, you know western eastern portions of Egypt, and then you've got the West Bank, which is inside Israel, uh, that sort of surrounds Jerusalem, uh, where the embassy was moved to. So you have the Jewish people, and Israel was really established as a safe place, a safe state for the Jewish people uh, post-World War II. Uh, and the... the um, uh, Arabs around, uh, and some are very moderate and get along great with, with Israel, and some are not so moderate and want to uh, eradicate Israel and, and uh, the people uh, that reside there. Uh, a lot of this is fomented, uh, Jeff, by um, Iran. Uh, Iran has um, habitually exported since the, you know, the early 80s, um, after the fall of the Shah and, and the rise of the theocracy there, the uh, terrorist groups uh, throughout 
Yemen, the uh, Houthi rebels, uh, way down on the south part of the Arabian Peninsula, the Shia militia groups in Iraq that continuously attack U.S. bases and forces uh, situated in uh, Iraq and uh, Syria. And then you have Hezbollah in the north uh, of Israel uh, uh, in Lebanon. Uh, and then you have Hamas, who is sort of the primary antagonist right now, all funded by uh, Iran and uh, as terrorist proxies for carrying out their own ends, ways and means for Iranian foreign policy. And so that's that's sort of the uh, setting the table for uh, what's happening today on October 7th. Hamas uh, conducted a surprise attack into Israel um, and uh, really uh, uh, murdered, slaughtered, uh, uh, you know, innocent Jewish people at a, at a concert in their homes um, and, and conducted atrocities that are not uh, consistent with the Geneva Conventions, which is an important distinction because there, people try to make a moral equivalency between what Hamas has done and what Israel's doing. And uh, Israel, I've been there, I've been to the Golan, I've been down to the border with Gaza, I've been to Jerusalem, I, and I've laid a wreath in, in the Holocaust Museum and, and Jerusalem uh, with the Israeli Defense Forces. So I, I understand the, the culture of the people, the threats that they face, and it, it's uh, every day is an existential threat for the Israeli people. And, and adhering to the Geneva Conventions and adhering to minimization of civilian casualties is paramount uh, in everything that I've seen the Israeli Defense Forces do as as I've um, operated with them. And so I say all of that to provide the, the larger context. They, they are surrounded. Uh, they have a constant threat. Uh, and Iran is funding all of these different groups. And essentially what you have is someone that's, uh, you know, if a football team is on your one yard line, every play and you have to have a goal line stand that's that's essential to use a football analogy that's essentially uh what israel is having to do is prevent uh that touchdown and and on october 7th uh the defense uh didn't didn't hold up uh on that goal line stand to use that metaphor so this is an ongoing conflict using many proxies and when you research this, you realize that there's always, uh, there's always attacks and counterattacks. There's always anti-terrorism operations going on. Uh, there's people getting killed all the time uh, between all these factions. And what would the events of the 7th do? What would be the strategy in your opinion, around that to escalate this conflict in such a drastic manner? Uh, uh, the why would Iran um, and Hamas do that? Or uh, yes, so what's the what was the strategic? You have to. None mm -hmm. of these actions happen in a bubble. They might be new to us, mm -hmm. but they're not new to the ongoing relations yeah. between the countries. They're, they they had to understand that this was taking things to a new level. And so you have to assume it was done with intention. Yep, yep, um, great and strategy. Great. What would be the strategy behind something like that? Yeah, the strategy is Iran um, uh, sees the traction that the Abraham Accords were getting and the normalization of relations between uh, Arab nations in uh, the, the Jewish state, Israel. And for example, UAE and uh, Israel, Bahrain and Israel, Morocco and Israel, others, uh, e even Egypt, um, uh, lots of initiatives. And uh, the, the essence of the Abraham Accords, however maligned they get by you know, mainstream media, is 
that you use economics to bridge centuries of, of hatred and that are, are sort of baked into the cultures. Um, and, and so a lot of traction there uh, with, with that and a lot of, uh, uh, and I was part of that when I served as uh, Undersecretary of Defense for policy. Um, you know, the Abraham Accords included weapons packages that helped uh, create offsetting balances of power and that kind of thing. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking to both, uh, for example, UAE and Isra Israel um, uh, policy peers um, uh, within their ministries of defense and making sure that we had this right. And, and, and I, I mentioned that because it, it, it was well along the way. It was f fully baked in some cases and partially baked in other cases where um, these economic relations were starting to trickle down and normalize relations between the, the countries where, you, you know, the more that you can exchange ideas and cultures and you say, well, that, you know, they're not that bad. They're, they're not that bad. And, um, so Iran can't have that, right? Because they're a theocracy and, and it's in their national interest to drive the United States out of the Middle East and eradicate, um, uh, eliminate the state of Israel. And, and so, um, Iran, uh, and, and the Shia influence, um, Shia, uh, you know, Iranians are Shia for the most part. And then most of the rest of the Arabian Peninsula is, is Sunni and they have a lot of disagreement. But in this case, uh, the Arab world is aligning uh, to um, support one another uh, in, in at least a uh, with with information and statements and diplomacy to try to um, have the back of the Palestinian people. And so the overall strategic goal of Iran, who, who calls all these shots um, from a terror exportation standpoint, uh, is to disrupt the momentum of, of the Abraham Accords and uh, the normalization of relations with Israel by other Arab, Arab states and, and to continue to foment distrust um, and discontent in the region uh, so that uh, they, Iran, uh, can, can, be, can continue to expand its hegemony in the, in, in the Arabian Peninsula. It seems like there are many paths to escalation, maybe uh, first and foremost uh, coming from Lebanon through Hezbollah with their uh, weaponry that they have and their um, uh, ongoing conflicts that they've had uh, uh, with Israel and Golan and, and the other areas. Um, what do you see as the greatest opportunity for this conflict to escalate uh, to a much broader situation? Yeah, um, you, you know, about two, three weeks ago, you had Hezbollah in the north with, you know, the, the leader was getting ready to make a big statement. He made a big statement and everybody was concerned that Hezbollah was going to, um, come in and, and, and attack from the north and Syria was going to attack from the northeast and uh, yeah the the uh, you know harken back to the you know the the, the mid 70s when you had major tank battles and and um, uh, you know where Israel was having to defend from interior lines in the north and the south and and so forth um, that was a concern. I, I didn't see that. And I was pretty consistent on whether I was on, it didn't matter what cable news show I was on. I, I said, I, I believe that Hezbollah is a fixing operation and fix is a military term to make you, uh, Israel have forces in the North so that you can't 
um, uh, reinforce in the South. So it's, it dilutes your ability to mass on the real threat, which was Hamas in the South. And so they, they did probing, they've exchanged artillery and all that. That's classic faint uh, fixing operation to use military terms. Um, uh, Syria, I don't think ever really seriously ginned anything up. Uh, the real threat for escalation and, and, you know, it's a coin toss and depending on who you talk to, um, there, you know, there is reticence, um, in, in the administration, um, today, uh, to confront Iran in a major way. Um, and we've talked for, you know, uh, last few minutes about how Iran <coughs> is, um, fomenting all this discontent, not only fomenting, funding and supplying weapons um, and and uh, also the rhetoric that goes with it. And so uh, do you treat the symptoms, which is Hamas and Hezbollah and Houthis, or do you treat the disease, which is the theocracy in Iran? And I think from a, you know, a policy perspective, if, if I were in my old job, advising the president, uh, you know, certainly one of the options to be laid on the table for the president to look at would be an option that uh, takes on in a non boots on the ground way, um, uh, Iran and, and attempting to um, dismantle some of their oil infrastructure, reimpose very strict sanctions, because remember, uh, the administration lifted the sanctions on Iran. They That's are right. now selling billions of dollars of oil to China. Um, uh, and and a lot of that money, uh, they, they unfroze assets to go to Iran. And uh, even though that's supposedly earmarked for humanitarian aid, it's fungible, right? If I if I know somebody's going to be paying my mortgage, well, then I can take that ten thousand, you know, uh, five thousand, or you know, whatever it is, and and um, uh, use it for other things, right? Um, Tony, are those policy decisions that you just mentioned connected directly to what we're seeing happen today? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think the policy decision to um, uh, eliminate the sanctions on Iran or, or not enforce them is probably a better way to put it, um, to unfreeze um, Iranian um, assets in exchange for some hostages that Iran had um, to uh, take the Houthis off the terrorist um, uh, list. Uh, all of these things are done in a, an attempt to appease Iran um, but we don't get anything back from Iran, right? I, I mean, there's, there's no, uh, what we get is they were training the Hamas operatives in Iran, uh, teaching them how to do the, you know, the, the parachuting in and the, and the, uh, the tactics and they rehearsed the October 7th, uh, event in, in Iran. And so this, um, uh, laissez-faire approach um, uh, is very different than the maximum pressure campaign that was um, in the previous administration that was having some effect on their ability to um, uh, export terror throughout the region. And, and so the, that policy makes a difference. Um, and, and so what we're seeing today is a result of a more funded uh, Iran, a more emboldened Iran. And um, frankly, you know, one of the things that concerns me is the intelligence failure that happened here. Um, there was an intelligence failure um, from the U.S. standpoint uh, in, in Ukraine also, and then there was an intelligence failure, uh, obviously, in Afghanistan. And, and so uh, when, I, when I think about you know, the border, U.S. border, is that the fourth intelligence failure that we're, we're going we're gonna to find out about? And so, you know, obviously these national security is best done in a proactive way. 
uh, figuring things out ahead of time, uh, predicting what's happening, having policies that uh, uh, attempt to uh, shape it so that you, know, you, you have less opportunity for uh, those that want to harm us uh, to harm us. Uh, so that's, I, I'm really concerned about that. What's that fourth intelligence failure that, that's out there right now? Well, simply put, once somebody shows you who they truly are, uh, believe them. And uh, the core of the ideology in Iran was not going to change regardless of us loosening, uh, you know, unfreezing assets or loosening restrictions uh, on them. And so we maybe we've got what we we've, we, we got what we bought uh, right. right now. Right. And um, with respect to the border, I've um, talked to more than one uh, person in uh you know in in circles and uh there's a big concern that uh we've uh, probably let in some people that maybe we shouldn't have uh kind of nestled in with uh with everybody else that's uh that's coming in with the with the loosened restrictions and whatnot so um which is a concern uh, domestically for our security yeah absolutely the uh you know, the, any um, government's job is to first and foremost um, protect their people and and their and their property. Uh, so, talking about Israel, you know, Netanyahu's job is to create a, a national security, a secure space, a secure terrain for the Jewish people to live. Uh, same thing with this administration. The there. You know, the security of U.S. Uh, citizens is uh, job number one of any, any administration. And uh, the policies of, of any administration should reinforce um, domestic security um, uh, because, you know, national security is a domestic issue. If people don't feel safe, uh, then, then certainly... Um, they're, they can't pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness, right? So consistent with our constitution. So that's that the it's in today's world, national security and domestic security are are uh, inextricably intertwined, and 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 certainly haven't operated around the world. Uh, and when I was in Afghanistan, and we were raiding. Um, Al-Qaeda and Taliban uh, hideouts in our intelligence, uh, we, we, we assess that we disrupted two plots to attack um, the United States. Um, this was pretty early on in the whole Afghanistan uh, drive, but the, the, um, uh, to the extent that we can uh, have intelligence assets that are that are working with other nations so that we can have uh, eyes on, ears on, uh, pictures, um, et cetera, imagery, signals, um, and, and so forth to build an intelligence picture to continuously assess the threat um, and then take appropriate action within the United States. That's sort of the whole purpose of our intelligence community and our national security community. Moving uh, back into the conflict at hand, and speaking of intelligence, um, signal mapping uh, within the region, identifying cell phones of known operators of Hamas, uh, mapping tunnels, uh, you know, apparently the majority of the weaponry and the forces are, can, or can or are contained underground. And are, which makes it very difficult to identify movement and also uh, to um, access uh, by the IDF. Um, and then uh, identifying operations, uh, basis of operations, basis of uh, where they're launching or, or defending. Um, what role, uh, you know, where, where were the intelligence failures specifically uh, leading up to the situation 
And then what do you believe from an intelligence perspective is important right now? Yeah. So on the failure side, uh, we, we have, we, the United States has uh, intelligence sharing agreements, arrangements with Israel. And um, I'm, I'm told that some of those um, were um, adjusted, rearranged, not enforced in light of this overall um, outreach to Iran um, over the last year or two, um, which would explain uh, either why we weren't watching or if we watched and saw and didn't share. Um, either one is really bad, um, uh, but that, that would explain sort of the, the failure aspect. And when, when you're trying to reach out to Iran, um, who, as you said, when someone tells you who they are, believe them, if they're shouting death to America, death to Israel, um, I, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of negotiation space there. Um, uh, so the, but, uh, in this, um, uh, outreach, uh, what, one of the things that we found is and Congress found this out, uh, there were three or four Iranian, some call them spies, some call them sympathizers, but they have top secret clearances and they work in the Department of Defense and Department of State. And so uh, it's not too too hard to draw a line between, um, for example, the chief of staff to the assistant secretary of defense for special operations is uh, uh, a, she's a, a U.S. citizen of Iranian descent, but communicates communicates regularly with the Supreme Council in Iran. And these emails were uncovered. Uh, she before congressional testimony, she would um, uh, go and and uh, uh, make sure that she's saying what what uh, the the Iranian uh, Supreme Council wants her to say, and it's not a stretch to assume that if she's, she has access to every piece of Intel that comes in, uh, particularly with uh, reporting to this, uh, you know, the number two there, um, reporting to, uh, the special ops assistant secretary who, when I was the under reported to me, um, uh, these people weren't there, of course. Um, uh, it's not a stretch to assume that that Intel was just not shared. Um, uh, so you could get a micro look at it like that and in a macro sense, the, um, appeasement strategy, the, uh, uh, with Iran, uh, perhaps they just weren't watching. Um, and you know, the worst case speculation is they knew and didn't tell, um, I, I would never, um, uh, speculate that, but it's certainly, I've, I've, I've seen people. So. So that's the failure part. Now, what's important now, um, uh, and, and I've been, uh, you know, the, the, this pause business where Israel, you know, gets attacked and then all of a sudden, you know, immediately you have people saying, oh, don't, don't strike back. Or uh, as soon as they get some momentum, oh, you need to slow down. Um, you know, we need to let Israel defend itself, right? If Israel is not safe for the Jewish people, then then what's, what's the point, right? And, and uh, what I know about combat operations is that, um, we, you know, when you have signals intelligence, imagery intelligence, human intelligence, uh, it, every layer of intelligence that you can possibly have, uh, you can use what time, precious time you have to develop good plans that protect your people um, and and then go, try to go find the hostages. Try to go and and um, um, you know destroy Hamas who attacked you. Um, and um, that momentum, offensive momentum, has a quality all its own that's really hard to capture because as you're pressuring Hamas, they have to communicate. 
They have to say, hey, I'm getting attacked over here. I'm, oh, I'm moving over here. I'm going here. Um, and, and they have to move because either that or they die or get overrun or get captured. And so when you have people talking and moving, all your intelligence assets are able to pick up on that. And, and it creates this operations intelligence cycle that gets inside the decision cycle of the enemy, Hamas, um, and allows you to be more successful. And what these pauses do that are being coerced onto Netanyahu and others um, by people who don't, un frankly, don't understand what I just said, um, uh, or per perhaps they do and, and, and want Hamas to be able to regroup and refit because it's like a pick six in a, in a touchdown or, or in, a, in a football game. It, you're, you've got all this momentum and then you've got to stop and, and now they're refitting and your intelligence isn't as good. Right. So that's that's the to use another football analogy. Um, and I do that because you were a football star upstate. So, um, well, uh, so the so the latency, any latency between an insight uh, garnered by intelligence and a, and a resultant uh, formalized plan and, and subsequent action uh, reduces the 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 the. Um, the quality or the, the effectiveness of the intelligence itself. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Uh, the, um, you know, you, you can apply that to the business world or whatever, but the, the, uh, now that we're paused, right. And, and I, you know, the pressure on Netanyahu has got to be enormous, right? Because, uh, these, these hostages, that are being doled out in a barbaric fashion. Little kids, children, women, 80-year-old, 70-year-old women, and and it gets heralded by the media um, as if you know it's a it's you know the the, the benevolent uh, Hamas um, captors. Um, it, it's barbaric, and uh, but what's what's happening is that. Their, Israel defense forces are hunkered around Gaza City now and continuing internal cleanup operations, right? Cordon and searches. And so the pause to me um, comes at sort of a natural time in the operational sense of, of comp, you have tactics, operations, and strategy. Operationally, this, I, I think Netanyahu played it about right. He got Gaza City. He's got it surrounded. There's still a lot of little tactical skirmishes happening inside all of that. Uh, he's clearing the tunnels. He's clearing the building. He's got a lot of work to do to, to make sure that that's 100 um, uh, percent. You know, there's no enemy in there. And and so he can pause now and and begin and you know i hope and i'm sure that he's planning for the next phase to go to southern gaza which is um you know a different kind of warfare um and uh it's it's going to be some of us more open land and it's and it's a it's a different kind of fight than the urban uh, fight that he's had. There is some obviously urban in the southern part of Gaza, but uh, if if they're able to get the hostages back and um, or the great majority of them and continue to plan uh, under no circumstances, if I were advising Netanyahu, would I entertain any kind of permanent um, ceasefire because he's got to get to southern Gaza and Israel, in my view, uh, what I know about all of the actors and players here, Israel needs to um, uh, clean that place out uh, and and dominate it, dominate that battle space, and and then reconstruct it, and then figure out some path forward. I don't think the UN is a good arbiter. Uh, they have a uh, they're they're um, they, they, they have 
too many um, Islamic extremist sympathizers inside the UN that don't like Israel. And uh, as borne out by the statements coming from the UN Secretary General and others. And so there, it, it would be a good opportunity for NATO out of area mission or, or some uh, combination of UN, NATO, and, and even the, the African Union um, coming together, um, you know, some kind of global peacekeeping thing. Uh, because you look at Gaza, it's right there on the med. And, and much like Beirut, it's been destroyed by this Islamic extremism. And it's unfortunate because the people there, uh, you know, Beirut used to be the banking center of, of the Middle East. And today it's a hollow shell of itself. And Gaza could have been, uh, if all these millions and billions being sent for weapons, have been sent for hotels and and restaurants and economic development. Um, it would be a resort now. And oh, it's all beachfront. <laughs> it's, it's all beachfront property. Yeah. And 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 um, but Iran doesn't want that. They want the hatred. They want the division. They want the they want um, these people to suffer. Everybody, the Palestinian, they don't care. They you know the the Supreme Council there. Uh, they don't care. They, they want people to suffer uh, so that they can continue to, to foment discontent. From a diplomatic perspective, what is the value of hostages to Hamas? And how do you anticipate them uh, maximizing their leverage in that regard? Yeah, well, I mean... We we put a price recently on hostages about a billion apiece, with um, from a monetary standpoint with Iran, six hostages, six billion, um, and then you know a few weeks later after that deal, there's American hostages being held by you know by extension Iran. So it's um, uh, it, we we very clearly defined the value monetary value hostages. Now, these hostages, um, uh, you know, are fungible, just like money is fungible. Um, so one Israeli or one American hostage in Hamas, um, you know, the, the barter that's been defined is you will release one hostage taken not in accordance with Geneva Conventions um, for three Palestinians that uh, terrorists who were detained in accordance with Geneva Conventions. So that's that's a pretty outsized gain for the Palestinians. But this is the tough spot that Netanyahu, who, who is in, is that if you've got parents staring at, I want my three-year-old child back. That's being held by Hamas. I mean, how do you how do you say no to that as a no, as can't. a leader and understanding? That, that you have an overarching responsibility to ensure that this never happens again. And so that, that tension between creating the buffer, defeating Hamas, and getting the hostages back uh, is a very small eye of the needle to thread. And I think he's doing it. I think he's doing it well. Um, the the um, uh, value... I notice that I think there's been one uh, at the time that we're talking, one American, a, you know, a young little girl um, released. Um, and, and you know, the other Americans are, are probably, the, they're the billion dollar a piece hostages, right? So, um, uh, so the, just the transactional value is three terrorists for one hostage um, non-American, and then um, uh, one American hostage for a billion dollars. So that seems to be kind of what uh, you know. If they're looking at a at a spreadsheet, you know what what they ought to be able to get, uh, which I'm sure they've they've developed. Um, that's that's. But but it's larger than that too, because there's this. Um, they're able to. Uh, 
uh, they being the uh, Hamas, is able to now dilute the anger. Uh, the longer this goes on, it almost they almost appear benevolent. Oh, we're going to release 10 more. Oh, we're going to release 10 more. They could, you know, at any day, release them all and quit firing rockets at, at Israel. <laughs> but but um, they choose to, in a very barbaric, sinister way, hold these hostages. And they're not being held just by Hamas. They're being held by Palestinians. A doctor was holding one. A teacher was holding one. So, you know, uh, Israel's not far off when they say that, you know, there's not as many innocents as you believe um, uh, if, if if these people are holding the hostages, uh, why not just turn them over if you're if you're a doctor and your duty is to first do no harm or if you're a teacher um, used to dealing with children? Why not? Why not on your own accord? Turn them over. And of course, the answer is because they'll be shot and killed by Hamas. So. Um, it's it's a barbaric situation there that um, uh, we we need to learn some lessons from this. Uh, and I'm concerned that, you know, maybe we're not. While we're talking about the people, are there NGOs uh, for humanitarian aid that are able to operate in this environment? And if so, who are they? And what challenges are they facing? Yeah, so the non-governmental um, organizations and private volunteer organizations, uh, NGOs, PBOs, um, they, uh, you know, the Red Cross, of course, is the big one. The, the, the UN, um, there, there is a heavy slant uh, toward um, the uh, anti-Israel slant in large part toward these NGOs. And, and when you talk about the aid getting in, you know, that's been part of the um, mantra here is uh, pause so you can release hostages and pause so that we can get aid in. And, and uh, these, uh, this potpourri of um, NGOs, non-governmental organizations to bring in the aid uh, my my question and the, what I talk about is when when I'm on TV or wherever is what if Iran is able to get rocket launchers and ammunition and um, you know rations etc to the Hamas fighters why can't they get the supplies into the Palestinian people. Um, that's the first thing. Um, uh, the second thing is that the the um, uh, Palestinian people that are exiting to the south, why, why don't the neighboring Arab nations, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, take them in? Um, and there's a reason for that, right? I, I, I think, you know, part of it is... Um, uh, they don't want to, uh, they, they want to keep, those people are fodder uh, for the larger geopolitical uh, issue of, of whether or not Israel belongs there, right? They're the cannon fodder for um, uh, the, the fight that, the, you know, indefinite fight that is, you know, that, that is, uh, Iran wants to, to go into infinity. Um, and, and so they don't want them to leave because they want them to be stuffed right in there and suck it up and suffer whatever consequences uh, that Israel, you know, has to levy on them after Israel has been attacked. Uh, these NGOs that come in there really see one side of this thing. Um, and... And it's true. Every war-torn area I've been, it doesn't matter who, who the bad guys are, who the good guys are, however you define that. It, you know, women and children and young men and um, you know, old men and old women, you know, citizens, they're all human. And and we lose sight of this human 
aspect, uh, you know, with all the dehumanization that is going on today from governments and techno fascism and, and uh, you know, politics of personal destruction and, and the dehumanization effort, we forget, everybody tends to forget that, you know, the, the, the young girls that were raped and killed in, at the concert in Southern Israel, they were, they were humans, they had families. Uh, the, the kids, uh, the young Palestinian families, you know, they're, they're humans and, and they just, they just trying to live a life. And, um, there, there are cultures and education indoctrination that goes on, um, uh, that, uh, is detrimental to, um, this larger goal that we should have of, of, you know, we're all, we're all on this planet. Uh, none of us are making it out alive and, and, um, you know, we should, we should try to get along because everybody's just a human trying to get along. And, and these NGOs, some of them are good and they, and that's what they do. And some of them, um, have ill intent, um, uh, and, uh, they, they end up, um, from a social media standpoint, uh, perhaps spreading misinformation. And I won't name names because everybody's, I, I feel like everybody's trying to, trying to find some path forward here um, uh, with, with this travesty that's happening. From a tactical perspective, we're talking about people and um, in Gaza, and as you mentioned, these are, these are families with children that have hopes dreams. They want their children to do well. They want them to be educated. They want, everybody wants the same for their children. We want our children to live a life, uh, you know, better than we did, uh, whatever that means. And, uh, so the crisis is, is real on all sides of this for, for those people. And, um, one of the analysis that I was watching was talking about, uh, really, a couple of things that were that would slow down operations. Number one is the people. So asking people to, you know, warning them and saying we're we're going to Gaza City. We're going to start in the north. We need everybody to move to the south. And then they then they said, now that we're here, we're going to be moving to the south, and everybody needs to move to the sea. And it's uh, you know that puts a lot of pressure on the civilians who are trying to get out of harm's way and carry whatever they have on their backs and then move uh, to the south. And of course, there are uh, there may be forces that are telling them, no, you need to stay right where you are, because if you're here, then that slows things down. And the other uh, thing I'd, I'd like you to uh, you know comment on from a velocity perspective or a challenge perspective is these tunnels, right? So in, I, I'm uh, not a historian, but uh, in the South Pacific in World War II, I think we, we, had, uh, we dealt with tunnels. In uh, Vietnam, we dealt with uh, tunnel warfare. Has the ability to? I mean, is is it? I, I'm. I don't know, but I'm. I'm asking you the standard operating procedures for dealing with uh, tunnel systems, entrenched uh, combatants inside of that. Uh, is is it? Is there anything you can do other than send people down there and and have it out in these areas? And I I didn't. I mean, the extensiveness of the tunnels, many of them. Uh, in in Gaza are concrete uh, fortified, reinforced. Uh, some there are there's some logistical things like some tracks and wagons and things like that. Uh, so it's a very sophisticated and ongoing operation to expand the network of these tunnels, and you can move people um, even uh, from Gaza into Israel in some cases uh, with the tunnels near the border. So uh, how have uh, the, the dealing with the, the tunnels and also then uh, the complication of the civilians, uh, how, how does that slow down operations uh, for the objectives of the IDF? Yeah, you know, um, Islamic extremists in the last, you know, 20 years of combat that we've seen have no issue in Hamas, I would put in that category. Uh, using civilians as human shields. It's, it's just, it's part of the game for them. And 
So you're right when you say, you know, they're not allowed to leave because um, having civilians on the battlefield complicates things immensely for for people who don't think the way that these extremists think and they actually value human life and they want to preserve human life. And I know that Israel, um, I've been in their operations center, they take extreme caution uh, when when targeting anything um, and to try to minimize um, or eliminate civilian casualties. And of course, in combat, that's really, really, really hard. Um, uh, so uh, that's the first thing. Now, on, on the tunnels, uh, what, what I would say is that it's, you know, the, the issues are related uh, in that if with, with the tunnels, if you indiscriminately try to bomb and close the, the tunnel mouth or, or, you know, collapse it or whatever, you, you don't know if they put a bunch of civilians in there or a bunch of hostages in there. And so, um, and I've been in the, uh, uh, a couple of tunnels, tunnel mouths in southern Israel that connected to Gaza that they had um, cemented. They found them. I mean, these things are just like, uh, you know, holes in the desert. And it just, you know, they pop up and, and they're very challenging to find. Uh, there, there are different, uh, you know, I, my last, assignment in the army, I was leading the um, counter roadside bomb effort called Joint IED Defeat Organization. And we had about $4 billion trying to, you know, this was at the peak of our young men and women being attacked by Iranian, mostly um, uh, improvised explosive devices. So Soleimani had created the explosively formed penetrator and one of the things that we saw, a couple of things we saw, is that if we had a tunnel or we had a house, they could rig that um, uh, to explode when a uh, American unit went in there for a four-man squad going in to clear a house, or you go under a bridge on a road, you collapse it. Um, you know, lots of different things can happen, and. And so this Iranian connection, they're experts at, at uh, these kinds of wicked, destructive, improvised explosive devices. Um, and, and so as you, as you look at the tunnels, um, you've really got to um, approach each one independently and very cautiously. Uh, we developed, um, our private sector developed, we, we helped fund um, a ground penetrating radar that could, that could find tunnels uh, to some depth um, and, and actually see what's in there. Uh, and so to the extent uh, that, and when I was in this job, uh, you know, I was part of my, my uh, working with the Israeli Defense Forces. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that that in the last, you know, 12, 15 years, um, that technology has matured and gotten much better. It was decent back then. And, and if it's, if it's improved, then they're able to either have something low, like a drone, go, go fly and look for anomalies that find these tunnels, um, or something high. Um, and, uh, that, that, can cover more terrain and find something that you could then send ground troops to, and then you can assess it. Uh, and there are ways to, to look at the tunnel uh, and, and put some, you know, we've got uh, robotics that can get in there and cameras and so forth uh, to protect human life. Uh, you can send, you know, a bot inside uh, that can then transmit back what they're seeing and then if you're pretty sure or, you know, or, or 100% sure that there's nothing to it, you know, close, close both ends of it and be done with it, right? And move on to the next one. Um, and, uh, you know, so I don't, I, I think these tunnels were, are more logistical networks uh, that uh, move to the hospital uh, where they had their command center beneath it, or they moved to the elementary school where they have another command center. That this is how 
fiendish Hamas is, they put all of their command centers beneath the kinds of things that normal human beings would say, you know, please, please don't go near that hospital, elementary school, you know, it's a daycare center, but that's, that's what they use as their, their shield. Right. And so it comes full circle back to the use of civilians on the battlefield uh, with these tunnels. Tony, thank you so much for being on today. This has been an incredible education uh, for all of us on the home front. If you were advising the administration today, um, you know, what would you have them consider uh, that they might not be considering right now uh, to uh, improve the situation uh, as best as possible? Yeah, um, great question. Uh, I, I always look at things for really the elements of national power. What national power can we bring to bear on the situation that serves our national interest? Because at the end of the day, that's that not to be harsh, but that's all that matters, right? U.S. national interest, this administration, any administration's number one job is to serve the American people. And so what best serves the American people? Um, I would, I would, there's a domestic component and there's an international component. My advice for what it's worth um, is uh, to domestically uh, reignite an aggressive energy exploration uh, and, and permitting uh, process so that we can become a net exporter of fossil fuels uh, while also having the um, uh, green agenda that, uh, you know, decarbonization and all that, which, you know, is important. Um, and, and what that does is it reduces, it eliminates a, a major concern of, it, it reduces the relevance of the Persian Gulf um, to the United States. And that reduces uh, perhaps the number of troops that we need to have over there uh, uh, for actions on the Arabian Peninsula. So that, that would be the first thing. You know, the, the, the rest of the world gets their, their oil from that area. But if we can be a net exporter, that means that it's not as important to us. Um, the second thing I would say is that uh, Iran is, uh, believe them when they speak, death to America. They're not benevolent. They will never be benevolent. They, and so um, take a different approach with Iran. Uh, be, uh, show the, the big stick, you know, that Teddy Roosevelt thing, speak softly, carry big stick, and, uh, and compel them to stop this exportation of terror throughout the Middle East. Uh, the, the funding that goes to Hezbollah and Hamas and Houthis and Shia militia groups. And if they don't, then there should be some punitive action. And we can do that from afar. Uh, we can uh, dismantle a um, uh, oil, um, oil field, oil infrastructure. What, what is it that Iran cares most about financially? Their oil infrastructure. Uh, their nuclear reactors, uh, we, we can very uh, easily impact those. Um, so I would have a flexible deterrent option, as they're called, on, on the table that if Iran doesn't, you know, tell Iran, uh, you know, from an information management standpoint, Iran, stop this, or uh, we're going to consider something more harsh. Um, and then diplomatically, so dip, diplomacy, information, military, economic. Diplomatically, I, I would, I would um, stop this engagement, a meaningless engagement with Iran, because it leads nowhere. Um, it leads to October seventh, um, and and uh, just get harsh with them. And then, uh, from a military standpoint, uh, you know, have the option prepared to to. Uh, be harsher with Iran because they're the disease. Everything else is a symptom. 
then economically, I would re reimpose very, very strict sanctions, and I would enforce those sanctions, um, and in particular, so that they can't send the amount of oil they're sending to China. One of the second-order impacts of all of what's happened over the last three years is that Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea have coalesced and become much closer uh, from a, a cooperation standpoint because they see us as a common enemy uh, that is is not um, acting in our own nation's best interests. And so their opportunity for hegemony, for uh, territorial uh, aggrandizement, uh, Ukraine, uh, Israel, Afghanistan, all of that, um, uh, they, they see as an opportunity. And so um, I, I would recommend flexing a little muscle um, and, and shoring it up through diplomatic information and economic means. They've certainly taken advantage of our lack of focus. Yeah, no question about that. Tony, thank you for your service, and thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today on the Homefront. Always my privilege to talk to you, Jeff, and the Homefront Brands team. All right. Take care. Thank you, sir. Thank you.